0: How many of you here have heard someone say before he's missing the forest for the trees? Anyone? Yeah. A lot of us have heard that saying. Can anyone tell me what that saying means? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It means someone has been caught been so caught up in all the details that they've lost sight of the bigger picture. It's a common occurrence in life. Parents get their kid involved in a sport because they think it will be fun and will teach their son or daughter how to be a good teammate. But by season's end, they've devolved into raving lunatics screaming at their kid for running slow or making some mistake. Americans participate in the democratic process with the ideal of finding a way to live together in peace, only to grow obsessed with destroying each other. We easily lose sight of the bigger picture. We win battles only to lose the war. Something like this happened to the Jewish religious authorities in Jesus' day. And we're looking at a lot of verses this morning, but I think what you'll find that what Jesus is saying here is pretty simple and clear, and we can sail through it pretty easily. Jesus' point is like a nail he is hammering it again and again until it hits home so first we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 21 22 rather um, now when we're looking at this whole this passage of, as a whole um, going all the way to verse 39 we find that it contains seven woes um, and and woe is basically a declaration of of kind of misery over, over a person um, for the position that they're, they've put themselves in. Um, it means good things aren't, aren't coming for them. Um, they're in a bad place. Now, at, when we're looking at verses 13 through 22, you'll notice that um, verse 14 is excluded, um, which would have made an eighth woe. Um, and the reason why it's not included is because modern translators... Uh, of the scriptures, which would include translators like the NIV, the ESV, CSB, NASB, um, they found that the inclusion of this verse didn't reflect, it wasn't found in the most accurate manuscripts that were available. Um, the, ver- the places in which you will find this verse is the NKJV and the KJV, because they're working, they didn't have as m- much access to as many manuscripts because um, The King James Version was put together in the time of King James of England. Um, So modern translators have more access to more manuscripts, and they've been able to arrive at the conclusion that that wasn't originally in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, Its it's exclusion here is not consequential, um, because um, the verse itself um, seems to be taken from the Gospel of Mark. And so you can imagine a scribe copying down these scriptures, probably decide, hey, like this fits here, Um, probably threw it into into the side of it and eventually got included. Um, So we have those verses up up here um, as it appears in that New King James Version. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Then when you look at the Gospel of Mark, um, the verse is, is very similar to that. Um, And it's pretty much saying very similar things to what Jesus is saying here in the Gospel of Matthew with all these other woes. So we have enough woes to (laughs) to look at here without diving into um, that verse that's been excluded. Um, So moving on from that, um, looking at these woes, again, these are exclamations of grief. And they're exclamations of grief that Jesus is declaring over the teachers of the law, which includes the scribes and the Pharisees. And in a whole variety of ways, he he alternates between calling them hypocrites, blind guides, blind fools. Pretty harsh language. Um, But we have to remember that the the position that these leaders occupy, um, they're responsible for leading the people of Israel, and they're mismanaging that leadership. And it's having consequences for those who are following them. It's is why we see in verse 13, Jesus says that you know, those um, who are following you, you're shutting the door of the kingdom of heaven on them. Um, and the reason for this is because they're demanding that the people um, fulfill superficial shows of religion that are very burdensome and are telling people, don't look at Jesus, don't follow Jesus, instead follow our way and you'll be all right. Um, trouble is, is that they're not going to be all right, Because um, following their traditions, which were just layered on top of God's law, wasn't what God was seeking. God was seeking people who had transformed hearts, and that's what Jesus was coming to pick out. Um, In verse 15, we see Jesus call them out, saying, you know, it's about enough that you're you're so misguided yourself, but the fact is, is that those that you're going to, and um, making your students, which um, would have primarily um, been those who were of, of Jewish descent, uh, although there was some Gentiles that would get involved in the synagogue as God-fearers. But um, you would have the Pharisees, and they would attract students around them. And what Jesus is saying is, like, you're misguided, you're bound for hell, and you're making those who are your students uh, doubly lost, because um, they're even more blind than you, because follow- they're following your instructions. Um. Now, to really um, fully appreciate, I think, this um, condemnation that Jesus is um, offering to the scribes and Pharisees, I think we have to see the purpose for which God had called them. Um, in, Luke's, in the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 7, verses 29 through 30, we have this little comment that's made um, And it says, all the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. Um, So lots of people recognizing what Jesus was saying was correct. But then in verse 3, he says, But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. Notice there that it says that God did have a purpose for them. And the trouble was is that they had departed from that purpose. They had betrayed the purpose for which God had called them. They should have been leading the charge in terms of following Jesus, and yet they're trying to pull people away from Jesus. When we go back earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 13, 52, we notice that those who are teachers of the law are not excluded as being, they're not excluded from being, becoming followers of Jesus. Um, it says, he said to them, therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out, his, out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. So the, these teachers of the law were called to become disciples of Jesus, and ideally, they would be able to draw from their wisdom to help others. Draw these storehouses, bringing new treasures as well as old. But they weren't doing that. Um, they weren't doing that. Instead, it was all the people that you would least expect to follow Jesus who were going first. Um, Jesus made mention of this in Matthew 21, 31, uh, when he was talking about the two sons and who were told to um, go out to the vineyard and one said, okay, I'll do it, and didn't. And the other one said, I wouldn't. But he ended up going. And uh, Jesus says, which of the two did what his father wanted? The first who um, said, I'm not going. But then ultimately went, They answer. And Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, and he's talking to the scribes and Pharisees here, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Um It's kind of amazing how these people that seem completely lost can see better than these these men who were trained in the law. And so, in comparison, these teachers are blind guides. Um, And some of this blindness is demonstrated by the confusion that they have over oaths, um, in making oaths. which seems like a strange thing to us. We don't really worry about that too much, but they were really obsessed at that time with grading out which oaths were more binding than others, um, whether you made an oath on the temple or on the gold that belonged to the temple on the altar or a gift that was on the altar. And um, Jesus, in his commentary here, just really kind of blows up their ranking system to, to smithereens, um, the point that he's driving at is that all oaths are made before God. The temple, altar, heaven, all of it is his. And we've heard him say this previously in the, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, verses 33 through 35. Um, there he says, Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. The message is very simple. God just wants us to keep our word. Because <laughs> anything that we say that we're going to do is said before him, and all the earth is his. It's a pretty simple concept, but these teachers had completely lost sight of it. They were more interested in being kind of the arbiters about what what oaths really counted and which ones you could kind of do with your fingers crossed. Um, now, Jesus digs in even deeper as we get into verses 23 through 28. Um, he continues with the woes, with calling them hypocrites, but he kind of brings in some things that might seem a little strange and surprising to us. He starts mentioning garden spices, uh, mint, dill, and cumin. Um, I, I mean, I enjoy spices. I enjoy good mint tea. But it, it seems strange to us here. Um, he's talking about how they're, they're focusing on, on these spices and giving me a tenth of that. And so we, we wonder, as 21st century Americans, what's all this about? Well, when we go back to the Old Testament, we see that God gives his people uh, this command that they should give to the temple the value of 10% of all their produce. So in Deuteronomy 14.22, it says, Be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. Now, you could imagine, if you're just one of the common people, that maybe your herb garden would escape that Escape that, that tithing because it just seems so small, not of r- real consequence, you know, not real crops. But the Pharisees, in an effort to kind of demonstrate their scrupulosity and how exacting they are, were uber focused on determining the 10% value of herbs. Real important stuff to them. Why? Well, in the verses that we've read previously here in Matthew 23, we remember that they were interested on putting on a show for others to kind of demonstrate how righteous they were. So it was important for them. But this kind of attention to detail, uh, this kind of obsession, was not among the really important stuff to God. Um, It's fine to have that attention to detail, but it shouldn't come at the cost of neglecting those things that are truly important. And the trouble is, is that they were focusing on tithing herbs and they were neglecting those things that were important to God, the important matters of, of the law, which Jesus points out in verse 23. He says, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And God makes it clear that this is his priority throughout the Old Testament. In Psalm 35, 33, 5, um, the psalmist writes the Lord loves righteousness and justice the earth is full of his unfailing love and Micah 6.8 says he has shown you a mortal was good and what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God and looking lastly at Zechariah 7.9 says this is what the Lord Almighty said administer true justice show mercy and compassion to one another. See, the problem with the teachers of the law is that they were focused on the little stuff, not the big stuff. And Jesus makes this vivid by pointing out their practice of of straining wine to make sure that no gnats got in it. Because gnats, I mean, aside from the fact who would want to drink a gnat, I I wouldn't want to do that, but there was an added level of concern because gnats were ritually unclean. Um, so you really wanted to make sure, um, if you wanted to stay pure, that they didn't get into your drink. They, were, they would strain that out. So Jesus points that out, and he says, you're straining the gnats, but letting the camels get in your drink. You've got a picture. of you know you got the camel, you got the gnat. It'd be kind of funny, kids, right? If you had a drink and you're swallowing a camel, right? It'd be tough to swallow, tough to go down. Um, but so he kind of uses this ridiculous example to show how ridiculous they're being. They're focused on this minuscule stuff. Meanwhile, they're letting this, these really big things slide the injustice, the lack of love and mercy. And he continues with the cup theme by pointing out what's the real key problem with these leaders. The key problem with them is that they're concerned with the outside rather than the inside. He says, you keep the outside of the cup clean, but the inside is all dirty. We've got a picture of a cup here, I think. Yeah, so that's a dirty cup. Um, And, you know, it's good to clean the outside of the cup. But how gross would it be if you went to your cupboard and you pulled out, oh, this looks like a nice clean cup, and you looked, and it's like, you know, uh, hot chocolate from last year's Christmas or something. You know, it's got mold and stuff growing on it. It'd be really, really gross. And Jesus is saying, "Is this is what you're like. You focused on keeping up appearance. Meanwhile, on the inside, you're rotten. You're full of greed. And this was, I mean, when it comes to cleaning vessels, this was something that they were actually also focused on. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, verse 4, it says, When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So literally, they're interested in washing the cups, but they're not dealing with the inside. They're not dealing with the heart. They're just interested in looking the part and offering external shows of religion, while they allow sin to remain within. Now Jesus has been saying throughout his ministry that the human problem really is the heart. In Luke eleven thirty nine 39-40, says, Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and the, and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness, you foolish people. Do not the one who made the outside make the inside also? And we saw saw earlier in the Gospel of Matthew 15, verses 11 through 12, what goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. Then the disciples came to him and asked, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? So the idea that what comes out of you is what defiles you is pointing to the root problem that you've got a rotten heart. And how do we deal with a rotten heart? The teachers of the law weren't reckoning with that, with how, how could we possibly deal with the problem of the hu- human heart. They were just dealing with cups and, and herbs and stuff like that. They weren't getting down to the root problem. And this is what Jesus has come to deal with. Jesus just goes another step further and um, pointing out just how empty they are. He says, they're basically just whitewashed tombs. They look nice on the outside, but they're all dead on the inside. And uh, You know, you can make things look pretty nice. This is an ossuary. It's a bone box. After they let the bodies lay out in the, the tombs, like the kind of tomb that Jesus laid in, they'd collect all the bones and put them in this nice, beautiful box. You can make it as beautiful as you want, but inside it's death. There's no there's no life there, I think we all experience that too. When you ever you go to a cemetery, you go to a funeral home, they can make things as beautiful as possible, but behind that there's a certain just despair and sadness because death is just behind this. And Jesus says that's the case with the Pharisees, with these teachers of the law, good appearance, but death stands behind them. Coming to verses 29 through 39, Jesus uses all this talk about tombs to point out that these scribes and Pharisees really have the heart of killers. Um, Now, during this period, it was common for the religious leaders to build tombs and monuments to some of the great prophets. And uh, Jesus picks up on this, on the fact that they're so focused on honoring their heritage and uh, this history. Um, and he says, you know, that's a bit ironic. Um, because it's your fathers who killed those prophets. And so then in verse 32, he goes on to basically directly challenge them. He says, go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. It's kind of an invitation. to say, It's almost like he's saying, finish the job, why don't you? Come kill me. We know by the end of the week, here, um, that they do kill him. He 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 uses the the terms that John the Baptist introduced, in which he also used um, later on in Matthew, calling them snakes, brood of vipers, um, and the reason why he's using those terms is because they're malicious, they're poisonous. They're not interested in righteousness. They're just interested in their own power and in keeping, in keeping Jesus down as Messiah. And so he's condemning them for the malice that they have shown and also that they will show because Jesus knows the way that his disciples will be treated, um, which is why in verse 34 he says, Therefore I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers, some of them you will kill and crucify, Jesus is one of them who is crucified, but others will be crucified as well. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. This is a good reminder to us as disciples of Jesus, as followers of Jesus, that we're following him all the way that we're inv- we're, we've been invited into His suffering. And when you come to Jesus, you can't expect that things are going to go easy, that everyone's going to love you. It's not the case. Jesus has told us this um, throughout His Gospels. In Matthew 10, verses 16 through 17, He tells His disciples, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. And Mark thirteen nine. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And in Luke twenty one twelve. But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison. You will be brought before kings and governors, and all on account of my name. This is the way of Christ. It comes into conflict with the powers of this world, whether it be the powers of the teachers of the law or whether it be the powers of Caesar. And the way of Christ continues to come into conflict with the powers of this world. Um, and I would say it comes into co- conflict with the powers in America, but we certainly haven't experienced the, greatness of, the great amount of suffering that others have faced elsewhere. We think about places in China and the Middle East Um, this is the way of Christ. But we have the assurance that those who persecute the prophets of God, those who persecute His messengers, will have to answer for what they have done. And specifically here, Jesus is speaking to these teachers. He says that they're going to be held guilty for shedding all the righteous blood throughout the ages. And Jesus uses the figure of Abel, um, who you might remember was killed by his brother Cain. Um, And uh, obviously Cain was not a teacher of the law, but I think Jesus is using this example here to say, you're acting just like him. He says, from Abel to Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah, which could refer to the priest... Zechariah, who appears in 2 Chronicles, or the prophet of the book of Zechariah. There's a little bit of a scholarly debate about who it applies to. I'm not going to get into it here. But the point is, it's kind of like A to Z. Um, Jesus is uh, saying, you're going to be held accountable for it all. And verse 36 is kind of foreboding because it says that, all, that this is going to come on this generation. Um, And we'll get into this a bit more as we get into further chapters, but a bit of a spoiler alert. In 70 A.D., the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed. So in this generation of these teachers of the law, they do see God's judgment come upon them. Now getting into verse 37, this leads Jesus to lament over Jerusalem. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent... Those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you are not willing. Look, your house is left desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, throughout these verses, Jesus has had a very critical tone in what he's had to say, but by the time we get to these verses here, we're reminded that this is coming from a place of love. Jesus loves His people. And He's wanted these leaders and those who are following them to respond differently. Jesus wanted to gather them like a mother hen gathers its chicks under its wings. It's that that kind of tender love that He has for them. Um, But they haven't come to Him. And there's going to be a consequence for that, which is that their house is going to be made desolate you know, again, anticipating that destruction of the temple which is to come. Um, and, he, and, he, and you can also pick out that he says, look, your house is left to you desolate. Before, he would have, God would refer to this as my house. Because God had made the temple his house of meeting the people. But now, it's been vacated. It's just their house now. And we see that this is the consequence that follows when um, God's people abandon him. Uh, that he departs from the house. In um, First Kings 6-9, through 9, it says, But if you or your descendants turn away from me and do not observe the commands and decrees I have given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land I have given them and will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. Israel will then become a byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples. This temple will become a heap of rubble. All who pass by will be appalled and will scoff and say, Why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this temple? People will answer, Because they have forsaken the Lord their God, who brought their ancestors out of Egypt, and have embraced other gods, worshiping and serving them. That is why the Lord brought all this disaster on them. In Jeremiah twelve seven it says, I will forsake my house and abandon my inheritance. I will give the one I love into the hands of our enemies. Jesus, God had done this before. The temple that Solomon built was destroyed. Um, the temple that was later built when uh, the Jewish people returned from exile, that was ultimately destroyed. And uh, this third temple, which was built by Herod, as I've said, is going to be destroyed in 70 A.D. This house is left desolate because it's without her God. um, Because the people have rejected Jesus, who is Emmanuel, God with us. Um, And so Jesus says in verse 39 For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, this verse is very familiar to us because. We saw earlier in uh, chapter 21 that the people welcomed him using the words of Psalm 118, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord from the house of the Lord. We bless you. So the condition that Jesus is laying out here that he's not going to come again until they say this, it's the condition that he's only going to come to them once again when they will finally embrace him as Messiah. And we see Paul talking about this in Romans 11, verses 25 through 29, and talking about Israel and their future. He says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and His call are irrevocable. So we don't completely. We it's difficult for us to completely envision what this redemption is going to look like. But based on what Jesus has said and what Paul has said, we have reason to believe that when Christ returns, there will be this response from the Jewish people to finally embrace their Messiah, because God keeps his promises. But for now, you know, thinking about in Jesus' time, from that point onward, um, desolation is upon them. A woeful blindness afflicts the teachers of law and all who follow him. And so there's consequences for that. Their obsession with their own authority and wisdom leaves them consumed by religious trivialities. They've given up pursuing justice, mercy, and faithfulness because none of that is needed to show themselves off. None of that is needed to make them feel good about themselves. The outside of the cup is clean, what's on the inside is out of sight and out of mind. They're angry that Jesus is trying to show them the inside, just as their fathers were angered by all the prophets who tried to show them the scum that was on their hearts. God sent his Son into this world to deal with our hearts. He didn't come to offer us a new religious fashion, crosses to wear around our necks, gilded books to carry, and clean cut appearances. He came to tear out your pride. He came to tear out your hatred, to tear out your root, your selflessness, your selfishness rather. By the roots. He came to kill you. All that you cling on to so dearly so that you might find a new life in him. The teachers of the law perceived this threat and killed him and response. Irony of ironies, this gave him all that he needed to really put us to death. Paul testifies to this in Romans 6. He says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. In order that we too may live a new life. This is what God desires. The new life which can only be found in Jesus Christ. But when people see that Jesus really wants us to die and get real, it's no surprise that they reject Him. Because our society likes to paint its face with virtue. But its reality goes no further than that. Virtue has become a means of pride. An opportunity to show off. And the mask slips off whenever an opportunity to show mercy arises. And we refuse to give it people obsessed with themselves can't fathom showing mercy and forgiveness to others but we in the church can be infected with the same superficiality we're fine with cleaning the outside of the cup maintaining the most basic of religious appearances but we pull back from those groups and opportunities to deal with what's going on the inside When our faith is reduced to our Sunday best, then we've really missed the forest for the trees. Jesus, the Messiah, has come to make all things new. This is the power of His grace. It leaves no dirty cups in the cupboard. It gives sight to the blind. It brings forth justice, mercy, and faithfulness from every nook and cranny of our lives. This is what Jesus has brought into the world. This is the full color of our salvation. It is worthy of that cry, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Father, we give you thanks that you sent your Son so that we might be delivered from our dead religious delusions. That through mere mere ritual and through mere appearances, Father, we could possibly be the sorts of people you want us to be. Because, Father, we know that you've come for something more than... Something that's more than just skin deep, Father. That you desire us to be truly a new people. That you desire us to truly be your children. To Be the kind of people that you've created us to be. And so, Father, we thank you that you have sent your Son to remove the mask. And to bring new life to our faces. Father, we pray that You would put within our hearts the same desire for mercy, justice, and faithfulness. And that we would entrust ourselves to Christ. That we would trust that in Him our sins are, are covered, Father, and we are given a new life. We are given the new heart so that we can live with You in eternity forever. We ask this in the name of Christ our Lord hey there pastor tom here i hope you enjoyed this sermon i offered to rockland community church rockland community church is located at 212 rockland road in north situate rhode island just around the bend from situate public high school we invite you to join us in person or virtually this sunday as we continue our series through the Gospel of Matthew, it's our joy to welcome you into our community.